Welcome in to News and Views with Tom Lamprecht. The stories you've heard and the ones you need to hear. We will forgive $10,000. It's basically trying to buy votes. Unfair to people who didn't go to college because they didn't think they could afford it. That the era of Trump head down to Florida where you belong. Get out of town. Get out of town. The release of this affidavit. I call bullcrap. It divides the country. Right here. Your life, your values, your voice. This is News and Views with Tom Lamprecht on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. All right. Welcome in. It is News and Views for another week, Monday. And uh, this is the definition of oxymoron. President Biden has announced his intent to appoint MSNBC analyst Jeremy Bass. Bash, I guess is how you pronounce it who insisted Hunter Biden's scandalous laptop was Russian disinformation to the president's intelligence advisory board. So this guy who has gone on for years, months, years, saying that Hunter Biden's laptop was Russian disinformation, never, never varied, uh, you know, went all, veered off of that. And, of course, last week on uh, Thursday or Friday it was, we heard Zuckerberg, the head of uh, Facebook, came out and basically said that the FBI told him that, uh, you know, this was Russian inf- you know, disinformation on the laptop. And now we know it is not Russian disinformation. So we know that the FBI was used to weaponize and change the outcomes of an election. Very well could have changed the outcome of election. I mean, if, if we'd had a fair election, now it might not have changed the outcome of the election if the election was unfair which many of us think it was um but anyway uh, this is this is the uh, epitome of what joe biden is all about it doesn't matter what the truth is he is now a guy who has been putting forth false information has now been elevated to the president's intelligence advisory board (laughs) uh so tell Joe whatever you want to tell him. That's It doesn't really matter what the truth is. You just tell him what he wants to hear. That's the important thing. Can't make it up. Carolina Journal is reporting that former Charlotte Mayor Jennifer Roberts, a Democrat, and former Judge Bob Orr, a one-time Republican, who has basically gone eh, not as bad as Liz Cheney, but is uh, probably in the... Uh, Somewhere between Liz Cheney and uh, eh, Mitt Romney, maybe. One-time Republican, whose recent political efforts have been largely in opposition to his former party, are leading an initiative to increase trust in North Carolina's election infrastructure. The initiative kicks off this week and is sponsored by the Carter Center. Former Democrat President Jimmy Carter's 501c3, which focuses on promoting peace and democracy across the world. Roberts, who spoke to the Carolina Journal on uh, August the 25th, last Thursday, said the 2020 election and the distrust that emerged afterwards led the Carter Center to develop the project here in the United States using strategies they've applied in more troubled areas of the world. The Carter Center for decades, of course, has monitored elections and democracies around the world, Robert said. 
They have been focused on peace and bolstering democracy and helping bring the lessons from how we've done democracy to other countries. Well, in 2020, and maybe a little before, they started hearing concerns about people's trust in our system. So the second most inept president in the history of American politics is going to make sure that we have fair and honest elections that we can trust in. What could possibly go wrong with that? Roberts continued and said around the time of the 2020 election season, they began to build a network of people to rebuild trust in the electoral process. The Carter Center chose the swing states of North Carolina, Arizona, Florida, Georgia, Michigan as their focus, both in the 2022 and 24 elections. In these states, they chose high-level influencers like Roberts and Orr, who they hope can get out messages saying the state and local boards of elections are trustworthy, professional, and the places they go for correct voting information. Roberts said that despite being led by the Carter Center, herself and Orr, and the North Carolina Trusted Election Tour is a bipartisan effort. You know, does anybody that's a conservative trust the word bipartisan anymore? I mean, it's a fairly meaningless word anymore. The liberals use it to try to justify what they want and try to get their way. Conservatives hear it and think bipartisan is a totally bogus word. Whenever Democrats say, oh, this is a bipartisan deal, it means they've gone out and found a Republican in name only to come over and put their arm around a Democrat and say, oh, we're buddies. And guess what? The, the, the Democrats never ne, never come halfway. Is the bipartisan, okay, both – you think a bipartisan is both sides end up giving up some of what they wanted and coming together in the middle. Bipartisan doesn't work that way anymore. Bipartisan means they found some sucker Republican who's willing to drop their standards and drop any kind of moral integrity they have – any kind of loyalty they have to their conservative values, they drop those and walk over and say, I'm a Republican and I'm standing next to this Democrat. That's what bipartisan has become. And I'm not, you know, if there was true bipartisan, I'm all for it. But Democrats aren't bipartisan. They're very partisan, and the Republicans are the ones that have to come over to their side of the aisle if there's going to be any agreement on anything. And that is not bipartisanism. When asked about Democrat efforts largely through National Attorney Mark Elias to turn state election procedures in their own favor, specifically as it related to voter ID, felon voting, absentee ballot rules, redistricting, and blocking third parties like the Green Party access to the ballot, Roberts said, there are legitimate rooms for disagreement on policy. But she's confident that wherever procedures are in place, and will be imp- they will be implemented professionally and safely by state and local election workers. Lady, the problem is that the procedures that were put in place were followed. The problems weren't following the procedures professionally. It was the procedures. I mean, that was the problem. Mark uh, Elias and other Democrats that controlled the Board of Elections, they were the ones that changed the rules well after early voting had started. Remember how the the Democrats basically just shoved aside the Republicans. And yes, 
the, the rules that they put into place after the, the rules that they changed and put into place after the election procedure started two years ago. Yeah, they were they were followed. But that's the very reason why people don't trust the election process. And all you're doing now is doubling down on the distrust. I mean, if that's the best you can come up with, when the Carolina Journal, and listen, kudos to the Carolina Journal for asking those hard questions. And I'm sure there's been no other media outlet that has asked those hard questions. You know, what about Mark Ayalas? What about the uh, voter ID? What about the felony voting? What about absentee ballots? What about redistricting? What about blocking the third party Green Party? which just happened a couple of weeks ago. It was just overturned a couple of weeks ago. And, and she says, oh, you know what? We've got professionals running these state board and local board of elections. They'll follow our procedures. Yeah, it's the procedures that we're upset with. <laughs> Again, the second most, and Jimmy Carter is very thankful to Joe Biden because Jimmy Carter is now the second most in that president in U.S. history. And we're going to follow his organization when it comes to building trust in our electoral process. Carolina Journal also is reporting a filing this month in the U.S. Supreme Court accuses University of North Carolina Chapel Hill leaders of making the same types of arguments that segregationists made against the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education. In other words, the same justification for separate but equal that segregationists used in 1954, 68 years ago, is basically the same argument that UNC is making now for their racist policies. Racist policies. I mean, this is... This is institutionalized racism. And I've got a bunch of stories on that today. That's the theme of today's program. Institutionalized racism. And it's, it's not white supremacists that are in charge. It's white liberals that are in charge. Or liberals in general. The brief from Students for Fair Admission marks the latest salvo in the group's battle against UNC's race-based admission policy. The nation's highest court will hear oral arguments on October the 31st. Halloween, that's appropriate. The Students for Fair Admissions group challenges UNC's defense of Grutter versus Bollinger, a 2003 Supreme Court precedent that allowed universities to continue using race in admission decisions. Now, by the way, the Supreme Court, if you haven't noticed, has changed quite a bit since 2003. UNC's argument is not with Students for Fair Admissions, It's with Brown, wrote lawyers for the group challenging the UNC admission policy. Quote, that landmark decision fulfilled the 14th Amendment's promise by requiring that education be made available to all on equal terms. As the United States explained then, no neutral principle could support a constitutional distinction between universities on one hand and public and elementary or high schools on the other. Yet Grutter draws that distinction. In defending Grutter's detour from Brown, UNC makes the same arguments that Brown rejected. The brief continued, it argues that racial classifications make everyone better off. It warns that universities cannot discard race quite yet, and it contends that the legality of its practices should be decided by North Carolina, North Carolinians, 
not this court. The segregationists agreed. I mean, that's the tr- that, That's what UNC is saying, and that's exactly what segregationists who who wanted to make sure that separate but equal continued in 1954. Same argument. The path forward is clear. Universities must treat each applicant as an American, not as a member of a particular race, according to the brief. The rule is seredesis, which means what, what has gone before needs to be observed. As the, the government stressed in Brown, it must give way to the fundamental principles that all Americans, whatever their race of co- or, or color, stand equal alike before the law. <laughs> yeah, and you can poly, uh, you can apply that not only to race, but you can also apply that to political party, by the way. This court should overrule Grutter and reaffirm the principle of racial neutrality in the Declaration of the Constitution, Title uh, VI and Brown. The UNC admissions case is, par- uh, is uh, paired on October the 31st with uh, students for fair admissions attack on race-based admissions also at Harvard University. That's a separate filing, but it'll be heard on the same day. Harvard used to boast that it was this court's model, how to use race, according to the brief. It no longer makes that point. Harvard was the model. It just never deserved to be. Once the Harvard plan was challenged in court, litigation revealed that Harvard uses race as a proxy for character, equates race with winning a national award, micromanages tight racial ranges, never considered race neutrality, makes no plans to stop using race and more if the court knew how universities would abuse the limited license it was granting them in 2003, Grutter would have come out the other way. Harvard insists that race is a part of who applicants are, that race still matters. Of course, Americans sometimes treat each other, treat each other differently based on race, said uh, this group students for a fair admission, but Harvard should not be perpetuating that unfortunate reality. Harvard should be leading by example. The way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. Thank you. Wow. This this is unbelievable that we are still fighting this. I, I mean, listen, I'm not saying racial discrimination didn't happen in the past, but you punish someone that had nothing to do with what happened 68 years ago i mean most most people weren't alive when brown versus board of education was there i was just born i'm 68 years old that was the year i was born and we're and we're now punishing for people saying well that we have to make up for what happened before anybody here now was born or at least 75 percent of the people wow can't make it up Hey, we've got to take a time out, but uh, again, that's the theme. You're going to see all these stories tied together today to uh, continue with that theme. Unfortunately, yeah, institutionalized racism is is here, and uh, it's the libs that are in charge. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is your Drive at Five, an ENC with Tom Lamprecht. Welcome back to News and Views on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. Welcome back again. Quick look at your weather forecast. Mostly cloudy with a stray shower or thunderstorm possible tonight, low around 71. Tomorrow, partly cloudy skies. Again, a stray shower is possible, high around 90. 
Scattered thunderstorms tomorrow night with low around 72. Chance of rain tomorrow night's 40%. Then on Wednesday, partly cloudy skies. Again, chance of a stray shower. Low on uh, Wednesday night of about 66. So uh, starting to cool down a little bit. Today is National Chop Suey Day. Eh, Not my favorite food. Just saying. So we were just talking before the break about this Supreme Court hearing on October the 31st. Students for fair admissions suing UNC, Chapel Hill, and Harvard, basically for racial discrimination. Some people used to call it reverse discrimination. It's just discrimination. It's racial discrimination. You are discriminating against certain people because of their race, and it's illegal. And my hunch is that... uh, UNC and Harvard. Now, you know, I mean, they're not. Here's the big problem. I I think the Supreme Court will rule in favor for this students for fair admissions. The problem is, I fully expect Harvard and UNC Chapel Hill to ignore the ruling and continue to do what they do. You know, it it is interesting that we are in the midst of of a um of a coup it is a uh, without guns it is a coup going on for decades and decades uh, even you know you have to go back to the war between the states the civil war to find a armed conflict and i'm not proposing an armed conflict But prior to the Civil War and after the Civil War was over, we followed the rule of law. Our institutions followed the rule of law. If the Supreme Court spoke, we all agreed that that was the rule of law. Now, we might not have liked the decisions, but we agreed that was the rule of law. This current coup that's going on it doesn't i mean it doesn't matter if the executive branch doesn't have the authority to forgive these billions of dollars of student loans they don't have the authority to do that the constitution's very clear but yet the executive branch says i don't care i don't care what the rule of law is i don't care what the law says i don't care what the constitution says i'm going to do what i darn well please and we have these supreme court rulings and if it's a conservative that is gotten the short end of the stick, when Roe v. Wade went through, we were lectured by liberals that shut up, it's the established law of the land. When Roe is overturned by the same Supreme Court, and by the way, this is not the first time any kind of ruling had been overturned. I mean, I mean, Brown versus Board of Education overturned the what was the, what was the uh, the the Pesley versus Ferguson ruling, which said seek separate but equal. So I mean, c- cases are overturned all the time, and Roe v. Wade was overturned, and then suddenly, we have those same liberals that told us that shut up and follow the rule of Roe v. Wade back in 1973 are now saying let's do away with the Supreme Court and their authority. Let's pack the court. We have some people let's saying. Let's do away with the justices on the Supreme Court. We have a DOJ 
and Democrats in Congress that are refusing to take steps to protect the justices. This is, again, a coup without a shot being fired. And until the people that refuse to follow the law are held accountable, and I'm not talking about, well, let's, let's you know, the guys like Stark, let's just fire him from the FBI. These people need to be punished. I mean, my gosh, they're talking about locking up Donald Trump for doing nothing, and I've got stories on that too. We'll try to get to them all. But you, t- you talk about this racism, this institutionalized racism. You probably heard about this last week. A.J. Rice writes about it today. The Woking Dead Eat White People First is the name of his article. It used to just be affirmative action, the term that was used for race-based preferential hiring practices. Now the Minneapolis public school system just doubled down by adopting race-exclusionary hiring practices. I mean, this is in the same category. I mean, this is, this is actually worse than what's happening with the UNC admission policies. If you're not white, you need not apply, as in there is zero chance you'll be hired. Irrespective of your resume, your color excludes you from consideration because racism, the real thing, is now institutionalized. And by the way, it's been this way for years. I'll share you a personal example towards the end of the story, but I mean, for decades, it's been this way. Yet up to now, it's been relatively stealth. You had to dig pretty deep to find out the rationale. Institutionalized racism has been there for a long time, but they tried to keep it hidden because they know that people would not embrace it. Now it's blatantly out there. Minnesota government schools is now codifying racism. In effect, it is the law and thus institutionalized. Get ready for it. Protocols. This is the protocol of the school system up in Minnesota. To remedy past discrimination, Minneapolis Public Schools and Minneapolis Federation of Teachers mutually agree to contract language that aims to support, aims to support, remember that phrase, the recruitment and retention of teachers from underrepresented groups and compared to the labor market and to the community served by the school district. To remedy past discrimination by blackballing people who haven't discriminated against anyone because discriminating against them is how you remedy past discriminations. That's what I was talking about before the break. Brown versus Board of Education 68 years ago. People weren't alive that are now being discriminated against. Young teachers, as you're going to find out in this story, in Minneapolis, who are white are going to get canned even though their resumes might be great, even though they might have all kinds of uh, accolades next to their job evaluations, they're going to get canned because of their race. To remedy past discrimination by blackballing people who haven't discriminated against anyone because discriminating against them is how you remedy discrimination. Aims to support when, in fact, the policy is specifically written to exclude Here's the language of exclusion, verbatim, straight from the mouth. Quote, if excising a teacher who is a member of a population underrepresented among licensed teachers in the site, the district shall uh, excess 
the next least senior teacher who is not a member of an underrepresented population. Now, that's a lot of gobbledygook, which basically just says the low individual on the totem pole who is not a minority. And again, you're talking about intersectionality. And, and listen, who, who knows what all is, it's, it, again, underrepresented. So if you've got, um, uh, you're transgender and you're black uh, and uh, who knows what else and you're female, well, then you get all kinds of stars next to your name. If you're a white male, buddy, you're out of here. <laughs> That's the bottom line of this. Excessing. In other words, doing away with your, your excess baggage. Think of it that way. How does one excess an applicant for a job as opposed to assessing them? You get fired. Manhattan Institute senior fellow Chris Rufo says this is inevitable. It's the inevitable endpoint of equity, by which he means the institutionalizing of racism that affirmative action policies were supposedly meant to, to dissipate. For it is no longer simply an attempt to look for qualified applicants who happen to be other than white and to encourage them to apply, assuming they are qualified. It is the deliberate exclusion from any consideration of people who are white, irrespective of their qualifications. In other words, potentially incompetent teachers, such as those who are using accessing rather than assessing or terminating, are guaranteed their jobs on the taxpayer dimes, whether they perform or not. Doesn't really matter. Students need educators who look like them and who can relate to them, says the Latter-day Father Coughlins of the Minneapolis government school system and their union partners in racism. This language gives us the ability to identify and address issues that contribute to disproportionately high turnover of education of educators of color. I mean, you know the rest of the story. Uh, I mean, it is, and again, this kind of thing is implemented. There are tens of thousands of dollars spent on taking uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars spent on having go through the process, having to go through the process of taking this to the court, eventually gets to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court says, that's unconstitutional. You can't do that. Nobody gets fired. There might be an apology put out, but guess what? They'll continue to do this. And as I said, this has been going on for years. On June the 26th, I went and looked it up today because it's been a while. On June the 26th, 1997, I spoke before a subcommittee, Lamprecht, I spoke before a subcommittee of the Judiciary Committee of the U.S. House of Representatives 25 years ago. I spoke of the events that had taken place years before that. In fact, I hate to embarrass my daughter. My my oldest daughter is now 40 years old. When I first applied for this FCC license up in Frederick, Maryland, she was an infant. (laughs) That's how long ago this was. The FCC, of uh, this is a part of what I, I shared with the, the subcommittee when I spoke in my testimony. This is, this is just about how the FCC decided how they would award broadcast licenses. As I say, 
This has gone on for years. Now, mine wasn't race. Mine was gender. But again, that was the early days of intersectionality. The FCC evaluated our applications according to two general criteria. First, it examined each of our applications to determine what other media properties we owned with the idea of trying to maximize the diffusion of ownership of media properties. In other words, they thought it was a good idea to have as many different owners in there as you could. Second, it awarded each applicant so-called quantitative integration credits, a term of art that describes the degree to which the prospective owners would be actively involved with their station's day-to-day management. The commission then enhanced the quantitative integration credit based on qualitative factors, such as an owner's broadcasting experience, local residents, local civic involvement. In addition, the quantitative integration scores were enhanced in cases where the applicant was owned by a racial minority or a woman. According to the commission, such preferences were granted in order to increase the diversity of viewpoints heard on radio and television broadcasts. And again, this was over 25 years ago. My chief, I went on and said, my chief competitor for the construction of the permit was a woman. I'm not going to give her name here. She was accorded such gender enhancement. Scored highest because of her gender enhancement, she scored highest and was awarded the construction permit. My application, Lamprecht's application, was ranked second in the initial review. Here is what the administrative law judge said, quote, On this criterion, Lamprecht suffers from a birth defect. He was born a white Anglo-Saxon male. They are not in demand under the FCC's present deregulatory comparative scheme. There was a day in the dim and distant past when Lamprecht might well have prevailed in this comparative contest. His educational background is broadcast-oriented. He has both management and non-management broadcast experience. He is a young man who appears aggressive enough to make a substantial contribution to his chosen career. In short, he he is ready for an ownership role, but in this day and age, it is doubtful he could win any comparative hearing. In other words, Lamprecht, you got everything going for you. You're the best qualified. Your problem is you're a white male. You don't win. As I say, now I'm not trying to make myself out to be the martyr. That happened years ago. I've gotten over that a long time ago. The point I'm making is this has been going on for decades, but it's always been stealth up to now. They, They weren't broadcasting it. Now they are aggressively out there pushing institutionalized racism, and the liberals are in control. We'll be right back. A collection of question marks. A lot of questions. Why? How? No logic, no reason, no explanation. Just a prolonged nightmare. Worst nightmare of their lives. This long nationwide nightmare. We'll start collecting clues as to the whys, the what's, and the where's. Neighborhood by neighborhood. Literally knocking on doors. This is your worst nightmare. The nightmare. It would be a nightmare. Worst nightmare. We will not end the nightmare. We'll only explain it. Explain to us. Because this. This. This is News and Views with Tom and Benny on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. 
Welcome back in. There is a new twist in the uh, congressional election maps boondoggle between North Carolina Supreme Court and the North Carolina legislature. Republican leaders of the North Carolina General Assembly want the U.S. Supreme Court to limit states' courts' ability to throw out congressional maps. There was a new brief filed in the Moore versus Harper case that was filed today. The case asked the high court to determine whether state's judicial branch may nullify the regulations governing the manner of holding elections for senators and representatives prescribed by the legislature thereof and replace them with regulations of the state's court's own devising based on vague state constitutional provisions purportedly vesting the state judiciary with power to prescribe whatever rules it deems appropriate to ensure a fair or free election, according to the document. The quoted language comes from Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1 of the U.S. Constitution, also known as the Elections Clause. Quote, the Election Clause provides an unambiguous language that the manner of federal elections shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. Yet in the decision below, the North Carolina Supreme Court invalidated the state legislature's duly enacted congressional map and decreed that the 2022 election and all upcoming congressional elections in the state were not to be held in the manner prescribed by the legislature thereof, but rather in the manner prescribed by the state's judicial branch. Quote, it is obvious on the face of the Constitution that this result is irreconcilable with the document's allocation of authority over federal elections, legislative leaders argued. As this court recently explained, the framers were aware of the electoral districting problems and considered what to do about them. They settled on a characteristic approach assigning the issue to the state legislatures expressly checked and balanced by the federal Congress. Their approach did not assign any role in this policymaking process to state judges, and the decision by the courts below cannot stand. Of course, as we know, a uh, three-judge panel tossed the congressional maps, and uh, it is now going to the Supreme Court for their uh, the North Carolina Supreme Court. But it will also end up at the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. I'm trying to figure out when is that going to be heard. Uh, October 19th. So two big North Carolina cases coming up before the Supreme Court, October the 19th and uh, October the 31st. Let's go ahead and take another time out now because I want to uh, get on with this uh, new DOJ uh, boondoggle and the Donald Trump, Trump Mar-a-Lago uh, situation. Um the DOJ came out today and said, hey, we don't need a special master to uh, review the documents. We've already done that. You can trust us. We'll be right back. Back to News and Views. Talk 96.3 and 103.7. So on Saturday, Judge Aline Cannon of the Southern District of Florida announced her preliminary intent to appoint a special master to go through the documents the FBI seized on the raid of Trump's Mar-a-Lago house. Uh, today, the Department of Justice, the DOJ, announced in a court filing that, hey, no worries. We've already done that. You don't need a special master. 
<laughs> now, they, they didn't come out and specifically say, you don't need a special master, but the implication was there. Uh, listen, we, we've got it covered. You can trust us. You don't need a special master. Really? <laughs> I think Donald Trump still would like to have a special master, just, just in case you might have missed something, DOJ. The DOJ said they would provide more information in a separate filing, but they said prior to the court issuing a preliminary order to appoint a special master to go through the documents, a privilege review went through those documents. So don't worry. We had our own guys do it. And, you know, we're good. We're fair. What could be going? No, nothing could go wrong with that. The privilege review team identified a limited set of materials that potentially contain attorney-client uh, attorney privilege information, completed its review of those materials, and is in the process of following the procedure set forth in paragraph 84 of the search warrant affidavit to address potential privilege disputes, if any. I think there's going to be some disputes. I'm just going out on a limb there. The DOJ filing said, those procedures included asking the court to make a determination on potentially privileged material, asking Trump's team if they are asserting privilege or acting on its own to keeping the material away from investigators. Um, pardon my bluntness, but does anyone have any confidence that this is not uh, already milk that's been spilled all over the floor? The, D- the DOJ admits, we've, hey, our guys have already gone through it. Well, Yeah. And now they're coming back and asking the Trump team. I mean, look, when they first took it, they, the Trump team didn't even know what they took. The attorneys were kicked out. They weren't even allowed to be there when they were taking these boxes of materials out. And now the DOJ comes back and says, well, which ones, you know, which of these materials are you asserting are privileged material? <sighs> Would you not think that the DOJ if they were honest and actually wanted to have some equity in this, they would not have had the Trump attorneys there as they went through the boxes? No. And listen, it's privileged material. That means you cannot look at it. And this DOJ is going to leak like a sieve anything that is going to make Trump look bad and the Biden White House look good. The DOJ also said that they and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence are currently facilitating a classification review of materials covered pursuant to the search and that the uh, Director of National Intelligence is also leading an intelligence community assessment of the potential risk to national security that would result from the disclosure of these materials. Listen, I mean, when, we, when they talk about national security, they want you to think in the back of your mind, ooh, yeah, if we do something wrong, the Chinese are going to bomb us and the Russians are going to come after us. And, uh, you know, the, the bad guys, you know, they're going to get all over us. And we might lose our liberties if that happens. <laughs> Guess what? You're losing your liberties, but it isn't from the Russians. It isn't from the Chinese. Right now it's from the DOJ and the Biden administration. Wow. Curious, the DOJ and the FBI said they would not release any information on Hunter Biden's laptop in the fall of 2020 because, and we just found this out this last weekend, because they said they didn't want to affect the upcoming election back in 2020. That's why they sat on Hunter Biden's election. 
oh, we don't want to affect this. In fact, they said, we don't want to affect this upcoming election again because they were asserting in 2016 when they're investigating Hillary Clinton that that swayed enough voters to come over to Donald Trump that Hillary Clinton lost. And they said in uh, 2020, in October of 2020, or the fall of, I think it was October, they said, well, we don't want to release this Hunter Biden information. We're going to sit on it because we don't want to affect the outcome of the upcoming election. Well, guess what? It's election time again. And the DOJ appears to me to be trying to affect the outcome of the election. The only problem is the last time they didn't want to take down the Democrat. This time they want to take down as many Republicans in the midterms as they possibly can. Uh, And point number two real quick. You know, when they came out and they were talking about um, they, and by the way, I, I said that 75% of the uh, affidavit would be redacted. My apologies to our audience. It was more like 95%. <laughs> so I missed out on that one. But remember, they came out and they said, well, we have to redact the names of the witnesses in there because, you know, there could be violence perpetrated against these people, and we want to make sure they're safe and blah, 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 blah. And, of course, I've talked about the fact that they didn't do the same for the Supreme Court justices. But one particular person's name they left in there, Cash Patel. Cash Patel, the former federal prosecutor, his name was right there in bold print, bright lights. Uh, Cash Patel is a little irritated because guess what? He is now getting threats. So they're being, they're, listen, they're going out of their way to protect uh, any liberals who testified against Donald Trump. But anybody that's on Donald Trump's side, apparently anyone who actually thinks Donald Trump might be innocent in this, um, they're fair game for violence. Unbelievable. This is our FBI and DOJ. What is happening? Hey, thanks for being with us. Pray for our country. We'll do it again tomorrow at 5. We'll see you then. Bye-bye, everybody. All right, all right, all right.